0: This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse.
2: And welcome, welcome to episode number 122 of Real Blend, a podcast that's recorded entirely in the cockpit of an airplane. My name is Sean O'Connell, the managing director here at Cinema Blend, and man, oh man, do we have a show for you guys this week. Hollywood's release calendar is shifting an awful lot yet again. Uh, DC has announced a fan event, a virtual fan event that will be taking place in August. And we have a lot of details to share with you guys about it and our special guest this week. In addition to the David Kep bonus episode that we hope you guys downloaded and enjoyed, we are going to be joined by Andrew Patterson, who is the director of that awesome alien, uh, well, alien invasion. I was going to call it alien invasion, but I guess that's not accurate. The Vast of Night, uh, a film that we were talking about on previous episodes and hopefully you guys got a chance to check it out on Amazon Prime and then we got into some great details with him about the making of that. And when I say we, I mean our co-hosts in real Blendomness, starting with Jake Hamilton of Fox 32 in Chicago. Hi Jakey, how are you?
3: Hi buddy. I like that. Co-host of
4: Real
2: Blendedness. <laughs> real That's Blendedness. Awesome. Well done. And uh and in the third chair Kevin McCarthy of Fox Five in Washington, DC. Hi Kev, how are you?
4: Bellis, good to see you as always. On honored to be uh talking movies with you guys today
2: right before we started talking movies we were discussing whether we should all get a tattoo yes uh, a real blend tattoo of some sort but not just the logo like all of our faces Everyone I'm thinking faces. like like a
3: mount rushmore and yeah. then like just replace you know we all we always talk about like who would be on our mount rushmore's what if we were on our Ooh. mount
2: rushmore's oh that's <laughs> kind of poetic I kind of like the way that that plays out. Uh, plugs. A reminder, we have a community page over on Facebook. Uh, there's always very fun conversations going on between the Blender family, uh, so head over there and join us if you haven't yet. We are posting all of these episodes to Cinema Blend's YouTube page, so if you're watching us right now, hello, hi, how are you guys doing? Um, and of course, you can get the show wherever podcasts are available announcement i kind of teased this at the end of last week's show but we have a merch store coming very very soon what Um, tell me again sean gabe has put (laughs) a ton of effort into this merch store and it's going to be coming uh early next week so keep your eyes peeled on our social media and then tune in and really it's a response to First off, everybody who participated in the Real Blend uh, charitable uh, initiative to get that T-shirt, you guys were all incredible. And we love everybody who grabbed a shirt. And thank you so much for doing a really good thing, not just for the show, but for the Will Rogers Pioneers Foundation helping theater employees. But when that campaign ended, we got a ton of great responses from people on social media and people emailing us saying, hey, I missed the shirt. Uh, Is there a chance for me to get it? And it really kicked us in the ass and told us we need to get going on that uh, merchandise store. So sooner or later, you guys will be able to have some Real Blend merch uh, that you guys can support. And we would be really, really happy that you guys are doing it to support the show. Yes, Kevin.
4: Sean, I was just curious if there's any way that I could put a bit out there to get Real Blend toilet paper made. So we could do like a bathroom blend kind of like coincide it's those two bits idea. together.
2: You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Gabe, is that possible? You're familiar with the store and the merch I don't. I don't
0: think there's a toilet paper option. Sorry. All right. So yet on. again, your bathroom blend plans are full. You hear that? <sighs> that's
3: that's that's the sound of dreams being crushed. Yeah, yes. man. Come okay, on. Okay. I will say without getting into too many details because we can't reveal from where this conversation came. Oh. But yesterday we did have a conversation in which we all agreed upon a certain context in which we would do bathroom blend. Bathroom blend was I, I don't want to say too much. <laughs> <laughs> um but it's the first time I've ever said Baby Steps. Okay, I would participate under those circumstances.
2: Yeah. Because Kevin and I have been on board. Yeah. Oh, you hear that, made, that's what they call a tease
4: in the TV business. <laughs> we made genuine headway yesterday. Back was, yeah. Blend is back in the saddle. <laughs> it, it, we, we, we are on the way. It's happening yeah. eventually.
2: <laughs> back on the, on the toilet seat. Um, we have a weekly poll. Uh, I'm going to lose it so this week. I can in, own. Honor, in honor of Spike Lee's amazing film, Defy Bloods, which is on Netflix. And I did see a lot of blenders uh, going to social media and commenting about it we decided to dedicate last week's social media poll to Spike Lee. And we basically asked you guys, what is Spike Lee's second best film? Um, assuming, which I kind of thought everybody would, that Do the Right Thing is his best film. Um, I hate doing that too uh, when someone, their first film or actually that's not his first, it's his second, but when a really early film is dubbed their best, because it, it creates such a high bar that it's almost not yeah. fair for them to be able to cross. Um But then so we added uh, Malcolm X as a choice. Malcolm X, the 25th hour, Black Klansman, which is his most recent one before Defy Bloods. And then we gave you other in case people wanted to throw out some other opportunities. So I will throw it to Jake Hamilton to tell me which of Malcolm X, the 25th hour, Black Klansman or other do you think won the poll?
3: I want it to be 25th hour because that's what I genuinely believe it is. Right. I think, unfortunately, not enough people have seen 25th Hour, which I think right. is going to be working against it. Because of the, like, the massive amount of popularity that came with Black Klansman, and the overall like goodwill toward that movie. Best I Picture feel, nominee? Yeah, I think I'm going to go with Black Klansman just because it's recent in everyone's mind. I'd argue it's one of his most accessible films, mm. and unfortunately, I feel like just not enough people have seen uh, 25th Hour, and I think far more people lie about having seen Malcolm X and have actually seen it.
2: Black Klansman dominated with 53.9% uh, of the votes, and Malcolm X came in second with 287 25th Hour only got 10%. And I, I saw this on social media. Somebody tweeted this, um, that they went back to revisit 25th Hour, and I guess it never got a Blu-ray release, or it's not nearly as widely available as a bunch of other spike lee films are and i wonder why i don't know what studio it's
3: like like apple tv i i rented it uh is it really yeah
2: oh okay that's fine because i went back through my collection too to see if i had it i don't think i do it's got a really horrible
3: dvd cover like it was like the poster itself was this very cool mostly red poster with like a like uh edward norton in a in the distance walking his dog and the 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 dvd cover it's his giant ass head like covering like the entire screen
0: that's awful.
4: And that's Kevin? also the first movie Isaiah Whitlock Jr. ever said the word she. Yeah, I watched <laughs> that clip today. That was great. That's the because I guess a lot of people know it from the wire, but that became like a I mean, obviously he did it in 25th hour and he did it into five bloods, but I I I actually did not realize how many times he said it in the wire. Someone sent me like a um a montage oh, today yeah. of him just dropping it. The, I mean, it's un, It's how did it not become like a. A, a bit it's it seems like a bit when you watch it in a montage but i guess in the oh. show it probably made more sense
2: it no it it feels a little bit like a bit by the end of the <laughs> by the end of him doing it because then he just sort of made them longer and longer <laughs> right. so i think like the last time he did it was legitimately a full minute long where he's just holding it she well, it's, <laughs> it's funny it
4: it's funny because like in the in he does it in <laughs> defy bloods and it's a very yeah. it's, it's it's like a joke Thing that's become more but but uh, I thought one of the things I found interesting was the cast was saying it actually helped with the camaraderie of the soldiers so it actually made sense but he uh, he works that into every movie Spike Lee I guess it was the first time it ever happened on 25th hour but I didn't realize the 25th hour and The Wire started in the same year so oh, so what I'm what I was trying to figure out was I guess someone must have seen or he must have filmed 25th hour and then when he went to shoot the wire, maybe told them about the bit he was doing. Uh, about, how long until the wire? Because I'm three, four
3: episodes in, and he hasn't done it yet. Like I keep waiting I for, it and he hasn't done it. So it maybe, was I, it was so, a, it was so maybe
4: it's like after it's come out that it like it becomes a wire thing. But maybe it took a little while. But today, like for example, I, I aired that interview on my on my show Fox Five in DC, and everybody was like, "Oh, that's from the Wire." And for me, it's always how did you clear. air that without explaining to people what what it is? what I did was I didn't air that part of the interview. I, I pushed people to the YouTube channel um, in Fox five DC so they could find that clip, but I explained yeah. it on the air. And then my producer got in my ear and he was like, you're talking about she, she. aren't <laughs> you? I'm like, yes, I am. And so that, that was that, but that honestly is one of the greatest, like, Bits, but it's in all of his movies. But Spike Lee, 25th Hour is where he first started it. So,
2: so we jumped to uh, this is our interview segment for the week. And we wanted to get Andrew Patterson on the show because um, Vast of Night is one of those films that just sort of stuck with us. It's a really fun experiment uh, in taking a film back to the 1950s, uh, doing what felt almost like um, a radio play with, uh, you know, a small amount of characters uh, them sort of chasing after uh, a, a mysterious sound, a UFO uh, sound kind of and and people calling in to an old fashioned radio station to to give away stories about what the sound might mean. It really intrigued us. And yeah, um, the Andrew
4: physicality pa- of her plugging those phones in was yeah. so cool. Yeah. I <laughs> loved watching her switch the phone jacks. That was so cool.
2: So we reached out to Andrew Patterson and he wasn't doing a ton of press uh, for that movie ahead of time. You guys got the the two actors uh, when they did uh press day for it but not the director and one of the funniest things that uh happened to us is whenever we ask for uh time we kind of ask for a half an hour uh sometimes we have to cut it back to like 20 minutes or so depending on how a press day is going and they actually got back to us and they were like um andrew actually prefers to go longer so can you guys do 45 minutes and we were like that's the greatest thing yeah. we could ever hear we love hearing that so um This is our interview with Andrew Patterson, where he dives into the making of and then the impact uh, of The Vast of Night and how it's uh, helping him out with his career moving forward. I hope you guys enjoy.
3: Andrew, seriously, first of all, thank you for joining us on Real Blend. We all uh, in this podcast love this movie. And we wouldn't say it if we didn't do, because we do a lot of interviews for movies that we don't necessarily love, and then we just kind of just go with the interview. So so seriously, the movie is incredible. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Um, I want to jump into uh, sort of this battle that I've been having with myself in terms of how I talk about this movie with with my audience, because I it's an easy hook to just say, oh, guys, it's an alien movie and you have to watch it. But I, I really do feel like that is a, just a giant disservice, because it is so much more than that. I'm curious on your end, when you're pitching it to someone or even when you're talking to your friends and family about this movie that you're making, how far down into your description of the film do you get before you use the word alien?
5: Oh, my gosh. That's a question I've never been asked. Um, I don't know that I ever did. Uh, Interesting. I, always, I think I always said it was a because, you know, there was a nice two or three years uh, from the time that I shot it to the time that really anyone saw it. And so people would want to know, like like people would people that I was friends with and grew up with that knew or people that worked on the film or people that they would want to know what's it what's it like? What did you make? What was your movie about? And I would always say it's a it's a it's a thriller set in the 1950s or a Twilight Zone type thriller set in the 1950s. And and then if they would they would usually go, huh? Oh, interesting. I kind of like that. I mean, I I like Twilight Zone and that would usually be where I would I would leave it. Uh I'm not one to really go sell my work or like explain in depth uh, what I do and what I'm trying to do. I just hope that the, when the movie's done one day, you'll watch it and and go down. So I I don't know if I ever have said aliens unless it was in a production meeting or pre production meeting or something like that.
2: Interesting that's pretty awesome um i am particularly enamored with the 50s as a genre um i I love stories told in that time frame there's something about that period it has an innocence to it um the the look to it it feels it has a newness to it that i'm attracted to uh when i see a movie shot during that period i get lost in the thought process of how a filmmaker secures the resources to stage it like How do you even go about finding enough cars that look camera ready? Uh, How do you decorate the gym, uh, you know, dress the gym to look like an authentic fifties high school gym. And even just down to like the equipment that you need for Faye's phone console or Everett's radio booth. All of these things are challenges where you can write it on the page, but having to bring it to life, uh, I would assume is far more difficult than people would, would imagine.
5: Okay. Well, I have a question. Have you guys ever been to like, the middle of America, like Texas, Oklahoma. I'm from Texas. Yeah. Oh, yeah. OK, so all you got to do is walk into an antique store and that stuff is sitting around no like, kidding. like a lot of the stuff. You'd be shocked how much the middle of America. And by the way, no one there aren't any prop houses out here in, in, in the middle of Oklahoma, like Oklahoma, Texas. You just go and, and you go looking. And, and so I kind of grew up around old stuff like it it was not weird to just you know have a friend that had a jukebox that was from the 40s or the 50s or have like you know have people that drive older cars than they should or have a handful of classic cars just sort of because that was their hobby that they were interested in and so to answer your question when we were developing the script the, the to try to make it tight enough that the resources that were needed We found so. Hmm. So in our case, we looked at this and we knew that we had three acts. Right. We knew we we knew we we needed to create a switchboard room and we knew we needed to create a radio station and we knew we needed to outfit or at least set dress a living room to look like it was in the 50s. And that felt digestible. What we just what I just described there, that felt like we could bite that off and make Hmm. that happen. OK, forget the gym, forget the outside, forget the, the the streets and the big thing, the really hard things. We knew that we could probably what I just described there, those three things ended up being about we shot all three of those locations in just three days of our shoot. And wow. and that's 65 pages of the movie, which meant that the rest of the shoot could kind of be geared towards the more complicated stuff, like like the things that deal with cars and the things that deal with uh lots of extras or or one that nobody thinks of which is just lighting giant swaths of land right <laughs> like that one that one alone if you've never done it before will eat your lunch so so <laughs> we without having anybody on the movie producer wise or anything we before we even even really had a you know a, a decent size budget we we were able to procure the switchboards uh we were able to build the radio station. Um, and and we did this for, you know, pennies on the dollar, a few thousand dollars. And, and I say this so that indie filmmakers out there can understand it. Like we didn't just go to somebody and then say, solve our problems, hmm. uh, build a radio station for us, and then we get a, a big bill, you know, that's ten thousand dollars. We went and found the stuff. We went and eBay, the 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 turntables that that are in the radio station. We I went to a guy that collects old audio equipment and he built the radio station for me. Um, In fact, he's one of the guys that wrote the score on the movie, Eric Alexander. And so 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 this is how thrifty we had to be. Then you get to something like the cars, which start to be bigger resources. And literally what we would do is if if we saw an old car sitting in somebody's driveway or flying down the road within a hundred miles of our location in Texas, we would go after them. (laughs) We would, we would flag them down at a a stoplight. No kidding. And we would say, can we get your number and name? You don't have to stop for us, but we have a movie and we'd love to use your car. And, and then a lot of times people in that area of the world haven't ever done anything that felt like this, like felt like a movie that was a creative opportunity. And so that's how we got a lot of cars. and, And we actually, I think on our largest night, we only got 16, and so we had to be very, we had to play Tetris with our cars in the parking lot to make <laughs> sure that it looked like there were more. And then you get to something like the gym and that's actually the anchor location for the movie. That that's why we shot the movie in Whitney, Texas is because that gym by and large looked like it does in the movie. We repainted a few things. We did sand down the basketball court so that it didn't have volleyball lines and three point lines and things that would make it anachronistic. And 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 that was a that was a bigger expense than, than I wanted, but you know, it was important to me. And so after that, you know, we had this gym, this kind of hero location that if it did its job in the first five minutes of the movie, you would think you were in the fifties and you would never start looking hard for the things that maybe would be tells it would be giveaways that we were not. Mm -hmm. Speaking of that. Yeah, that is
3: amazing. And it's funny too, because I actually would have, I would have sworn that you guys had, Dozens and dozens and dozens of cars all at one time. So it's a testament to how you guys shot that. Um, Speaking of of the 50s, one of the the, the things I really loved about this movie, and I feel like it's really uh, been more relevant in the last 10 days uh, than than even when I saw it, is this idea of amplifying voices that weren't listened to. And it's easy to say initially, like, okay, like the voices above, but specifically the two voices in the film that we hear from, uh, uh, one being a black man, the other uh, an, an older woman uh, people in the, in the 50s who were not listened to at that time. Um, you know, right now, we're, we're really in this age of, of, of really you know, talk less and, and listen more. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about that theme of, of amplifying voices that just weren't listened to in the 1950s.
5: Oh, I mean, I love that question. Um, so we wrote the script this time five years ago. Okay, so, so that tells you how you can't know that your movie is going to drop in the middle of probably, at least in our lifetimes, the most important window of time about social injustice and so on. So I can't take credit for that. I can say that I do care deeply about voices that aren't heard. And and I always wanted to tell my movies and tell tell the story from the point of view of people that maybe you don't get to hear from and see and listen to very often. And it started by knowing that I wanted a f- female teenager to be the protagonist, which was not maybe what you would choose to make a a film that is a Twilight Zone thriller, paranormal and close encounter type of movie about you. Just that alone, just deciding to make it about a young, nerdy girl who ends up kind of being like uh, having her own uh character engine I guess or impetus was 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 a big decision to let go okay cool we're gonna let we're gonna let you think the movies about the radio jock guy and then we're gonna steal that away from him and let <laughs> this be about her yeah. right and then it became clear that uh, I, I always I, I haven't written anything I've never made a I've never written a script or made a movie that didn't have a very strong minority character or lead and and I love the idea that you had somebody who was willing to talk, but but the people of his generation wouldn't have cared to listen yet. And that this is the character of Billy, and and so when we get to him, he basically has these fresh ears for the first time in you know a decade or two decades, and they're listening because maybe the people that are their parents' age weren't and wouldn't. And then you have then you have the last act with Mabel, and I. I keep finding that everything I write, I somehow always write an old woman into it. I'm I'm doing it right (laughs) now with the one I'm writing. Uh, And so, and I I don't know why. I just, I I feel like they have so much to impart and so much to tell us. And and I wanted Mabel to feel like somebody that was clear-eyed and once again, hadn't been listened to. And so I'm glad that those themes, I'm glad you picked up on those themes. I'm even more glad that they've landed in a window of time when people maybe are more receptive to Mm -hmm. that kind of storytelling and those kinds of characters.
2: Uh, Andrew, I was reading a great point in an interview that you gave um, about this movie, where how difficult it was for you to land uh, a DP that really fit what you wanted to accomplish and how you had zeroed in on that as a realm that you desperately wanted to get right. Um, And so, but you went through a lot of rejections uh, from what you said, from a ton of people who you wanted to work with. And we do have a, a number of sort of budding filmmakers, people who are really interested in the filmmaking process, and I, I think it's important for them to hear from you how much rejection is such a huge part of this process, and how it, important it is to fight for a component of your film that you know you know is going to be is going to make or break the the project.
5: Yeah, I I I'm feel like if I can be of any service to anybody out there trying to make a movie, it's to let them know that. You have to keep pushing forward when nobody wants to help you. Uh, and th- this this was consistent for months and months when we were making the movie that that you know I would call a casting director. I had two casting directors that that said they would love to help. and then that was it. They wouldn't email me back. and i would I'd sent them the script, and then they would say, I wouldn't get an email back. I have two unreturned emails from casting directors where i where I described this exact movie where I described about the switchboard operator and radio station. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they didn't, they, they, after they read that breakdown, they never emailed me back. I, I had dozens of people that wouldn't let me talk to a DP or wouldn't let me meet with a DP or a cinematographer. And, and I just kind of got to the point where it was like, well, I'm going to make this movie no matter what. Mm
1: -hmm. So
5: it got to be daily. You just kind of get tough skin. It just, you just get to the point where you go, okay, well, this person doesn't want to cast movie, then someone else will. This person doesn't want to DP my movie or, or even move the offer on to their client, You know, an agent who, who wouldn't even move. The, that happened a lot. And, and we to the point where you know we knew we were going to make the movie no matter what. But the rejection is something that you have to understand uh, is part of you getting to where you are finding creative solutions for everything. Mm-hmm. If everything just drops in your lap, I, I don't even know that I would want to see a movie where everything – just dropped in the director's lap or the or the producer's lap or the or the creative team's lap because and this is something I talked to high high level producers about that have produced you know franchise movies that are as big as anything that's happened this century and they still say it doesn't matter if you have 150 million dollars you still have to you still have to be creative even at that mm-hmm. level and so on so I would just say take the rejection and figure out a way to be creative with it I love that
3: um, Andrew, I want to talk about I, I guess what i what 'm referring to is anti inspirations because I, I remember reading an interview with Spielberg uh, when War of the Worlds came out i don 't know what was it like fifteen years ago, and he talked and people were asking him about like different alien movies that inspired him, and, and in fact he he said, "Well, let me tell you what here are all the things I hate that people put it alien thing, Things I'm I'm sick of seeing the White House blow up and I'm sick of seeing this. And, and and he sort of made the opposite on that. I'm I'm curious, you know, obviously we talked about how this movie is so much more than an alien movie, but are there tropes from that genre that that you absolutely wanted to steer clear of that you're just sick of seeing?
5: Yeah, love, uh, that's a great question. I I would have to think back because, you know, they were things that we avoided in the script, you know, uh, five years ago. Now, when we were writing it, I can think, I can tell you this. Uh, I didn't want to see a romance. Uh, I didn't want to see something bud in a, in a 90 minute real time movie that would, that would be, that would seem, I mean, that would seem preposterous by any stretch of the imagination. I can tell you that I didn't want to see squabbling amongst an older generation and a younger generation. Like I didn't want to see I didn't want to see some townsperson that was a mayor or a, you know, and and a town hall getting called in the middle of the movie where some people believe and some people don't believe, and it's this squabbling. i don't I don't like squabbling and fighting in movies anyway. I, I just think that that's that's a trope that tends to feel like when you're writing it, it's interesting but it's just sort of like noise and 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 cats fighting on screen when it happens I, I I so I avoided that um I can tell you that we wanted it to be the opposite of the tradition of just sort of having a lot of fucking scenes like that that is a, that is the I think that there's I think if we've learned anything from a movie like Gravity or 1917 or any number of these movies where not as much happens over the course of two hours, uh, it's not about cutting and having 200 scenes in your movie or having really quick scenes or having three 30 seconds here and 10 minutes here and bouncing around with different characters. So we were avoiding that. Not to say that that doesn't work. I think that there's, for crying out loud, you can look at movies like, zero dark 30 or uh anything anything that feels like that that just has an immense amount of scenes and activity and momentum and and i'm just as big a fan of that as i am the films that don't need that and so we knew we were going to make a movie that was mainly three scenes that was because we were trying to shoot for a play and so the anti-inspiration would be watching movies that that had like 20 characters and you were bouncing around between all these narratives and, and they didn't necessarily seem to serve the story so much as they just seemed to serve short attention spans.
2: Um, Andrew, we have to talk about your sound. Um, It's, it's a character. It has to be a character uh, in and of itself. I'm curious uh, if you could talk a little bit, a little bit about the process of creating it. Also, if there were some that you heard that you rejected for various reasons and I specifically kind of want to know if you let Sierra hear it before she had to interact with it for the first time on camera.
5: OK, I'll, I'll answer that right now and then I'll re- I'll go through this because, no, she was in a room in September of 2016. And we didn't have the first sound until a year later oh, wow. uh, in wow. September of 2017. And, and so she's reacting to nothing And, and just being Sierra McCormick, which is a brilliant, she was 18 at the time, just a brilliant, uh, very experienced young actress. And, and I would, I would get into her head a little bit, you know, I would, I would say, I would just say something like, so you're, you're looking at the radio and this is going to be, this is going to be the thing that leads you down the rabbit hole. And then I would see what she would do with that. Uh, and, or I would look at her, I would say, when you hear this sound, the universe just got A lot bigger. And she would she would turn that into her response. Um, Then we get to a year later and I have two wonderful sound designers working on the movie. Um, David Rosenblatt did the lion's share of it. And then Johnny Marshall did a lot of the sniping. And Johnny is the sound designer on movies like Upstream Color and uh, oh, nice. Ghost Story, and anything that David Lowry's oh, wow. done lately. Wow. Uh, Old man wow. again. So I got kind of an out of oh. my weight class sound designer.
2: Texas film community, right? That's everybody in that in that area. Sure, of course.
5: Yeah, that, that's it. So Johnny is like Johnny's everyone's first call if you're making a movie in in Texas or whatever. And and I think I met with him in November of 2016 after we'd finished shooting the movie. And he was like booked until June or something of the next year. I mean, it was like that far out. Right. And that was fine because I, I needed my VFX to have some time to bake and all that and to edit the movie. So the first pass of the sound was a little – it was more like um, – it sounded more – Home appliance esque, like like a little bit more like a dust devil or uh, um, maybe a jet engine at a distance. Okay, and it's still under it. Like we didn't lose that. We just turned it into something that wasn't the primary thing, because I needed the sound. I had parameters for what I wanted. I, I, I my number one parameter is I wanted it to sound new in cinema. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't want it to feel like you'd heard a piece of it somewhere in a Star Wars movie or uh, an old episode of Twilight Zone. Or something. I wanted it to feel like when it was all said and done, this is a new sound. And the second is I didn't want it to be threatening at all. Uh, I needed it to sound like it was not coming from anything that was here to like crawl into your brain and like take control of your, you know, body and that. Kind of, I mean, it needed it just needed to be kind of mesmerizing. And, and of course those are really vague when you say that, that doesn't really, that doesn't exactly like (laughs) give someone a roadmap
1: uh, to go,
5: yeah, go this way. And when you get there, it's going to look like this, that it's not, that was basically my instructions. And so the first pass, I wasn't huge on and, and we, we started to pull it back and I, I made sure that I told them I wanted something that sounded like maybe there were some very slight throat glottal noises in it like Mm -hmm. i i actually this is a this is a reference i think maybe your people will get i really always thought it was really beautiful in the first lord of the rings film when gandalf talks to a moth uh, that lands with him and if you hear that and then you hear our sound you can kind of see how we leaned a little bit towards that
3: that's. I just rewatched that movie. That's so cool that you said that. So I know. I know exactly what you're talking about. I
5: always and I'm sure that was just Ian McKellen making that up on site. You know, like just being brilliant, like he is. <laughs> so that was a little bit of where we came from on the sound, and that's kind of how we got to where it is today.
2: That's amazing. That's Thank so you. So cool. Thank you so much for that. That's awesome, uh, Andrew. I'm going to
3: ask my next question carefully because I'm. I'm one of the people. I, I'm someone. I don't. I don't like to know the answers to things. I like. Uh, kind of just wondering, and I don't want to know at the end of Inception if the totem falls over. I don't want to know if like the Joker is imagining everything. I'd I'd rather get into an argument with someone about it, which we do on this podcast a lot, but what I don't want is a filmmaker to come out and say, here's the definitive answer, because I feel like that kind of ruins it. That being said, I am always curious as to whether or not the filmmaker knows the answer and just doesn't want to tell us. I'm curious. There are some unanswered questions specifically with the ending in terms of like what happens. Um, I had the chance to chat with uh, Jake and Sierra and I put that interview on my YouTube channel. And even within the comment section, people are debating and arguing and talking about what happened. So without answering as to what happens at the end and then beyond when we cut to black, like, do you know definitively, definitively
5: in your mind or do you not care? I, I do know. And, and, and the thing is, I would never give you my take anyway. Um, I'm, I'm very big on ambiguity and storytelling. And, uh, I believe it's actually, I love what ifs. I love, love, love what ifs. I think they are the engine of, uh, so many wonderful conversations and debates. And, you know, I'm, I'm very much that way about, Everything, And so I know, I know what I wrote. I know what, I know what the film, I know what the thinking was behind everything that concludes the film. I know the, the science and the physics that we were aiming towards with all of it. And I would say that hopefully everybody finds their own answer. And, and I, my wife has a completely different take than I do and and she has a very you know and a lot of people a lot of my friends that listen to me talk or ask me about the film they want an answer and and I'm like are you sure and and if I give it to them you know everyone has a different point of view Mm -hmm. and so I I love for people to come to their own conclusion
3: have you heard of any theories where someone says like this is what I think happens and you just pause and go like that's stupid. No, that's not it.
5: No, I don't. I I, I don't like to under, I don't like to, I don't like to take away people's joy of their, the possibility that, that they've arrived at. I, I think it's my co-writer on the film, Craig Sanger is a like huge conspiracy theory kind of fan and guy. And, and when we were writing this movie, actually think when we were scouting it, we ran through, you know, a lot of different things that he was digging up at the time about the JFK assassination. And I think part of the reason that things like that stay interesting forever is because they can't be answered. And so far be it from me to jump in and, and, and put a definitive take on something. That's cool.
2: Uh, we uh, are obviously uh, audience members who watch a, a ton of film and, um, you know, not, not that we're Ahead of a film a lot of times, but when we start to settle into what the story is going to be and and the beats start to reveal themselves, I think we have a lot of fun uh, internally just thinking like, okay, but how far are we going to go with the story? How much is going to get shown? Uh, How deep down the rabbit hole are we going to go? Uh, you do, we can talk spoilers because the film's been out for a little while. I will put up a spoiler warning for anybody here. You know, we will get into a couple of details. Y- you you do take the time to design a ship. You do show a ship. Uh, I'm curious if any point in the process, did you allow yourselves to come up with a design for what your aliens might have looked like?
5: Okay, no, because, I mean, it it was something that I never like all the way back to the original screenplay, I mean, there was some thoughts, and they were only ever thoughts. Okay. That you would see, Faye, like that—that that somewhere in a field, Faye would walk out there with her baby sister, and and it was always alone. I, I didn't ever it wasn't created yet, so that tells oh. you how early in this this thought was. Wow. There were some thoughts that there would have been a shit like a smaller one in a field or in a forest. And she walked onto it and just sort of looked around and had this like experience. And 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 that might've been uh, a very unique thing, but I kind of felt like I'd seen that before. I feel like I never saw it, but I feel like maybe that's kind of how predator two ended or I'm sorry. What's the one? Is there, is there a Danny Glover
2: that's Predator 2. That's yeah, Predator, like, that's yeah, Predator yeah, yeah. I'm Sorry,
5: guys. I'm, I'm not that big. I, I love. <laughs> I'm I'm a big fan of that world. But I feel like he ends up on a ship and sees alien heads on it. Right? Is yes, that kind of like? Correct. So yes. I felt like that's what I was stealing when I when I thought of that. Was like this thing was like, oh, I'm just doing Predator two at this point. And so so I I kind of imagined there was a scene where she walked on a ship, but she didn't see, she didn't enter she didn't ever see anything. Um. She didn't see a, a, an alien, so to speak, and right. so that was the closest I would have gotten to it. Not just being what it ended up being in the movie, which is a scout ship and and a mothership, mm-hmm. and and being the the way that we finished it. But no, we didn't. I didn't ever think that this movie would ever make it as far as it did. Like, <laughs> I really, really. I mean, this was. <laughs> if you look at some of the bold choices in this movie, I didn't think for a fucking second that there would be, like, people actually watching this thing all the way through. Now, I thought I made a good film, but I thought it would maybe come in 10 or 15 or 20 years, okay? I did not think that it would drop on Amazon and, and experience that it's sort of turning out to be. The last thing I was ever thinking was, oh, people might enjoy seeing some kind of life form. And I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have felt comfortable stretching our budget to that point. I think we would have, like, really maybe shot ourselves in the foot trying to do something that was a mixture of, like, a Muppet and a CGI thing, you know, that just would have like probably really sucked.
2: Well, to that end, then, can you just talk a little bit about the reaction to the reception? Because we talk a lot about, you know, with theatrical releases, you have the the attention of the audience, you know, you, you get a marketing run up and we're in a, a brave new world kind of now with streaming and and even with all of the options, you know, for a while, it was just Netflix, but now it's Disney plus and HBO max and Amazon prime. Um, and and too many films uh, of all different types of qualities get released and don't find their audience this one has really caught on you know the buzz surrounding this has been so strong and i can't tell you just how many casual people during a quarantine have come up to me and said hey did you check out fast of night and so um t- please tell me just your reaction to to being able to cut through the zeitgeist with this film and and if it's then, you know, sort of changed your ability to follow up on the film? Is it giving you a little bit more freedom and opportunity?
5: Um, okay. First of all, I'm not in, I stay off of social media and generally stay away from the reactions and the and, and the internet at large for my own creative sanity. And so, if, if it's going well and people are excited about it, uh, that's fantastic. I only know that from some of my publicity team and, and my wife occasionally telling me it's going well. Uh, <laughs> so, so, so I'm, I don't want to say I'm the last one there, but let me put it this way. If I, if I choose to lean into that and start digging around and, yeah. and finding out all this stuff, it's very distracting to, yeah. to my creative process. and, and, And I think that the best thing I can do is try to put my head down and write something new that hopefully people that liked what I did here will like the next one even more. Uh, And so the fact that it's becoming or has become at least, you know, as you put it, cut through the zeitgeist, um, I think that's what you would dream, like, if you you could, like – Write out your own dream ending. That's what you would want. Like I, 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 never thought that when I made a movie that has scenes where you cut to black and and, and uh, long monologues by characters. I, I thought I would get a festival run and an agent and maybe somebody would pay for my next movie. That was right. like that was all. I didn't. I didn't think we'd get a distribution deal. I didn't think we'd get. And then and then to get to a place like Amazon where the marketing team just very much. Fell in love with the movie and and turned it into a very important title of theirs is something that I you know you you can't pay for people's passions like you just you either have it or you don't and they mm-hmm. they got very serious about it and then and then you can't time something out like a pandemic or anything like that and so we kind of cut through the wheat like we 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 would not have gotten the kind of eyes on it if this had been a normal. Uh, month of May. And I'm aware of that too. So I'm very grateful. uh, But at the same time, I'm aware that it's, uh, it was kind of a fluke in a sense. I always thought we had a movie that could become like a Dazed and Confused or Reservoir Dogs or something like that, that that nobody really saw when it dropped. Um, And then it became big, you know, five or 10 or 15 years later. That's what I always thought we had.
2: Is there a dream, a dream festival you would have loved to have taken to?
5: Uh, Well, I mean, you know, if you've done any poking around, we got rejected by a whole year of festivals. We got starting in January with Sundance all the way through the end of the year of 2018. We got we got rejected by all of them. And so I I can't say that I'm disappointed in what happened with the movie, because it means that I'll maybe get to go to a festival with another movie later and get to experience that at that point. So I'm very happy that it came out at Slamdance and that it got embraced and then and then it sort of snowballed its way up to, you know, something as big as Toronto, where even there we cut through um, sort of the, the thing. And then to answer your question about has it changed my opportunities, it has and it hasn't. Um, the way that it has changed my opportunities is it's gotten me in it's gotten me into meetings with probably people that that I wouldn't have otherwise, you know, certain studios and whatnot, which is lovely. But it hasn't changed it in the fact that I'm not jumping up to um, really large budget movies right out of the gate. So that's I, I probably had the kind of interested investors and creative collaborators for the last year um, that want to make movies at the level that I'm interested in making it next.
3: Well, it's it's funny you bring that up because that was actually my next question. Um, I feel like there is this trend uh, just really within the last 10, 15 years with studios looking at directors who maybe have directed smaller films and then giving them a big franchise. I think it happened with Jurassic World and it's happened with Star Wars. It's happened with the Marvel films. Um, obviously, it sounds like you're you're already writing your next project. But is that something you have any interest in down the road? Would you love to be handed a franchise movie or is that something that, that doesn't interest you at all?
5: Right now, I... That would be a very hard thing for me to do uh, to jump into a franchise, mostly because the things that interest me don't creatively. Uh, don't get me wrong; I, I can, I've, you know, I sat and watched. I thought the last like two Avengers movies were fantastic, brilliant, loved them. Uh, I, I love the scale of like um, a lot of Hollywood stuff. It is creatively what I'm interested in doing. My stuff usually looks up and feels a little bit more like, um, I would say probably early Quentin Tarantino, or uh, even, and it's funny to say, early Denis Villeneuve who you know made the best movie of the decade, as far as I'm concerned, which was En which came out in 2010. Before he did Prisoners and Sicario and, and Arrival and so on. And so those movies are super exciting and special to me. And so I, I can't say that I would never do a franchise or wouldn't take some intellectual property at a much larger budget, but I'm not pursuing it. And, and, and it's not that I'm not taking meetings or reading scripts. It's just that the ones I've looked at haven't been enough for me to go that way yet.
2: I want to jump back to Vast of Night just for a second, uh, because it's in revisiting it uh, to prep for questions for this, it, and it didn't even dawn on me the entire time watching it the first time through. But it's an entirely uh, set at night story, and I'm curious, just from a logistics standpoint, if night shoots are a total bitch.
5: Yeah, uh, <laughs> I mean, look, the the bottom line is, I I I don't, I'm personally kind of obsessed with like things that get in my way uh if if something is an obstruction i'm gonna cool fine i'll figure it out uh you know uh, uh, night shoots are tough so so what did we do months before we had a crew and a grip and an electric team we we ordered extremely powerful lights off of amazon and we we crawled up water towers and grain silos, and we attached them permanently to these fixtures all over town in Whitney, so that we would have light just so that we could go out and do camera tests and then, whenever our grip and electric guys came in, they would light up the space with a condor or light up you know a, a chunk of a street that didn't have any lights on it. but we we would attach you know we literally we would go to home Depot and we would buy. Clamp lights like lamps and buckets and zip ties, and we would zip tie them onto uh, things like telephone poles, and we would put the light in a bucket so that it would cut the light in a way that it would shoot down, so that we could run our go underneath it without having have shadow, you know, fly through the shot, which is uh, harder than it sounds. Keep like a moving piece go kart flying through lights without shadows going everywhere. So night shoots are tough in that uh, you do have to light every lick of it, but if you have time and moxie, you're gonna figure it out. And, And that's what we did. And we crawled up, like those lights that hang down the middle of the downtown street, those are like Ikea lamps that were 15 bucks a piece. And two of my executive producers and I crawled up there with rope and we hung those in the middle of the street two or three weeks before production so that we would have light on the street All the time, no matter what, in case our grip and electric guys were cranky one day and didn't want to help us light a scene. Um, So so you just get to a point where you you have a trap door method for everything. And if and if night shoots, uh, if they're going to be a bitch, then figure out a way to get out in front of that bitch.
2: Andrew, I'm sorry if this is known. Did you go to film school or you just Are you backed by an incredible group of friends who are happy to help you? (laughs) If you look
5: at the opening title of the movie, it says Amazon Studios, and then it says GED Media. GED stands for whatever that means when you drop out of high school. Um, (laughs) And so that's that's it, guys. That was the the last thing I did was go to somewhere around 11th grade, and then and I did two or three years in college, uh, just a like video kind of like 2,000 person. Um, junior college sort of level in Oklahoma and didn't go to film school at all. Never, never moved out of Oklahoma City even. Um, So everything has just been me and and a group of guys that have, you know, believed in what I was doing, even when I was crazy. Wow. Wow.
3: Well, it's it's funny now that I'm about to ask a, a guy that didn't go to film school how he knocked off some pretty amazing oners. Um, cause I'd be remiss if I, if I didn't get that in before our, 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 time is running out. But, uh, Sean and I had the pleasure of speaking with Sam Mendes for 1941, no, 1917, sorry, wrong movie. Not, not Spielberg. Not Spielberg, uh, Spielberg's 19, comedy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> 1917. And he talked about, uh, happy accidents where it would almost have to be something catastrophic for him to call cut and reset. And basically one of the things he told the actors is like, look, like if something happens, like just keep going and we'll figure out. And one of the best ones is in 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 that big climactic scene, uh, the lead guy like, like bumps into somebody and falls down. Yeah. Like that was an accident. They just kept going. I'm curious. Are there like, your, your wonders in this are unbelievable, but are there any happy accidents that
5: happened that, uh, that, yeah, actually there'll be some, we'll be, we'll be covering that more with some of the like supplementary stuff that Amazon's releasing. Um, The one that – the take that's a 10-minute take or nine minutes and 40 seconds or whatever where Sierra's at the switchboard, Faye's at the switchboard, we actually had Jake Everett in the room reading his lines just so that that he could do his radio bit and she could respond to that. And there was a microphone above his head that was just attached to something, and it fell on him in his take. And Sierra didn't – like she just she was so in the mood and that's the take we used I think we had other takes on both sides but her performance was the most dialed in there so much so that when a mic fell off of a piece of equipment and landed on Jake's head Jake like kind of kept saying his lines but you know uh, I think he cursed and then and then Sierra doesn't 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 do anything she just keeps going and, and stays focused and so I that's the one I think of. There's a couple on on the long one or that that we we didn't really have any happy accidents there because it was way too choreographed for that to have any, like, possible thing that we could implement. Um, so that one is pretty much as we scripted it and as we choreographed it. But that the one you asked me, the happy accident with Sierra, like, you know, the, the mics falling on Jake. I don't know if it was a happy accident, but it proved that she could actually like stay in it no matter what. That's a pro. That's awesome. All
2: right. I have to ask the uh, origin of the running joke of the uh, squirrel that had bitten through the wire. (laughs) The origin is,
5: is, is my brother is a bartender in Oklahoma city. And he, he had, they had a flickering neon sign out front of their bar and, and he, and and they were going to get it fixed. So they went out there and they pulled the plastic off. And the flickering was caused by the fact that a squirrel had bitten through this wire and it was dead, but the wire was sitting in its mouth. So they had to pull the thing out of the squirrel's mouth and then, and then, and then patch the wire. And I, I always just thought that was the funniest image. And, and I like that a town of people would all know this story and, and just kind of keep bringing it up uh, because that's how humans are. We, we tend to all... We all tend to know the same information and then and then kind of repeat it over and over again.
2: It made me laugh every time. It's good. <laughs> uh, and then I'll, I'll close this off on this last one. Um, because you use the conceit of going through the television set and it gives it a bit of a serialized uh, sci-fi TV vibe. Uh, and, you know, back when John Krasinski did The Quiet Place and, and he wasn't quite sure if he was going to go back and tell the story, but he had kind of consciously set up other campfires around and I think at the time he did press for the first movie he said if someone else wanted to pick up the baton and, and tell another story set in this universe I gave them a little bit of leeway I'm curious if you could see someone else sort of using the conceit of going back into the television set not necessarily picking up your story um, but going back and maybe exploring a similar genre uh, in a different way and, and almost just running with it in, in the way that you've laid the ground for them
5: oh I mean I, I think that was always kind of a on the table um i've been asked about it by more than one production company or studio that that has wanted to maybe turn it into an anthology type thing Mm -hmm. i haven't gone that way yet because i would think that i would think that we would have we've already kind of set the bar high in terms of a what what i think is the quality of the movie and the quality of the storytelling and and if we came back to it i would want it to be i would want it to maintain that kind of quality sort of like the the toy stories franchise right mm-hmm. like like you basically just know these guys they're not going to do one until they've got something um and and i don't really know that i have something yet or or but if somebody if somebody a came up with something that i thought was impressive or b if i thought something worked i think that it is maybe an exciting possibility to crawl back into the tv and and see another world well, i love it seriously thank you so much. We, I, I feel like we would probably keep
3: going but seriously this is this is an unbelievable interview and seriously thank you so much for your time man. we really do appreciate it
5: i, I appreciate your guys you know interest in the movie and and i, I hope that your your fans and everybody kind of can get to where they understand my intention with the movie uh and i think you guys can help with that
2: yeah just in a time where you know it's it's franchises and sequels and recognizable things we're we're thirsty for original content with you know inspiring ideas and that's what we dialed into the most out of this film so we're thrilled to get you on to to talk about the making of it and hopefully um we'll have you back on for sure thank you for (laughs) your time Thank you so much to Amazon Prime for giving us time with Andrew Patterson. If you guys haven't seen The Vast of Night, it's absolutely one of those films that you need to catch up with. Um, I know that there's so many streaming options all of a sudden, and I know that we're missing going back to movie theaters, but there's some good stuff out now that you guys can watch on various streaming services and some other good films on the way, uh, which we will be teasing at the end of this episode. So let's get into news. Uh, We've been really looking forward to getting back to theaters. And with each week, uh, we seem to get closer to what we thought was going to be a a return to normal. But on Friday of last week, Warner Brothers uh, just info dumped a bunch of release date Mm. changes. Um, I will mention that Unhinged, the Russell Crowe film, uh, is not Warner Brothers, but it did move itself back to July 10th. Uh, still feels like it's going to be the first movie to open uh, p- to welcome people back to theaters. And again today, when we we're recording, Regal Cinemas said July 10th is the day that they're going to open. Uh, I think AMC theaters said July 15th. Is that right? Um, so somewhere around that middle of July that the big chains are looking to come back to. Kevin Tenant Tenant Tenant. I keep saying. It sounds like I'm saying "tenant," and I don't mean to be saying "tenant," but someone yelled at me on social media. "Tenant" is now down for July 31st. Uh, we'll get into the other release date changes, but first and foremost, Kev, how are you doing?
4: I, I'm I'm doing. You in regards to tenant, um, sure. Of course. I mean, I, I'm. It's one of those interesting things where I'm just finding I'm I'm, I'm trying to hear both sides of this discussion. Um sure. People who don't want to go back to the theaters and people who do want to go back to the theaters. Um, I mean, to me. Two weeks is nothing. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm still happy it's coming out in July, July 31st, still going to be returning. Um, you know, Inception opens up on July 17th for its 10th anniversary, which is really cool. So I will gladly go see Inception again in theaters, even though I have the Blu-ray at home. That's just how much I miss the theatrical experience. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting thing. I mean... you you're caught in between a scenario where we do not understand where we are in the world. It's a very Mm -hmm. unprecedented, uncharted moment. I saw a quote today that basically said like, you know, this is all, this could change within a week. Mm -hmm. And you know, we're, you know, you're seeing cases spike in certain areas. Um, It's so fascinating to me because I, I, I want Tenet to be that movie that, that does literally quote unquote save cinema, because I feel like we need to push people towards the movie theaters with something that big that would give them. Cause remember, like if you're, if you're thinking about it like this, like if you're like, if you're trying to get over that hump of going into a movie theater, mm-hmm. King of Staten Island tenant, let's look at both of those titles. Now I'd love to see King of Staten Island in a, in a theater. No question. But think about the one that's going to push you over the hump. What's the one that's going to say, Oh, I kind of might go back for that one, and I feel like Tenet has the ability to be that film. Uh, July thirty first, is it still going to happen? I, I think so. I mean, especially with that Regal news today, uh, July tenth reopening. Um, I think I think Nolan's more Nolan Nolan meet, seems more focused on saving movie theaters rather than the gigantic box office they would have maybe a year from now. And mm. I actually. I get it from a business standpoint, if you're Warner Brothers and you, you, you want this movie to have the biggest audience possible. But I still believe you can have a 25 screen theater like AMC Empire, pop tenant into every single screen, limit it to 25 percent capacity per theater, then you're good to go. And okay, because in my opinion, thing. let me push back a...
2: slightly. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead.
4: No, I was just going to say, if you're going to open restaurants, you can open movie theaters. And if you're not the... going to open movie theaters, don't open restaurants. It's the exact the thing same I... thing.
2: Don't get about this, though, and I promise we'll move on right after this, Gabe, is that what's the difference between the 17th and the 31st in terms of where we're going to be as a society? And instead, all Nolan is doing and Warner Brothers is doing is cutting into the number of screens that they're going to have access to because Mulan has held on to their 24th. I think Mulan
4: Mulan pushes. I I think Mulan goes to Disney Plus.
2: God,
4: man. I I don't think there's I think Mulan missed its window, unfortunately. Um, and I people think have that have forgotten m- about Mulan. Yes. Oh yeah. And I, and I think what they're going to have to do to build momentum again for that film, because I don't believe Mulan is a movie that would push me over the, or push someone over that hump. I right. really don't. And I think that Mulan's going to, it's best way now is Disney plus. I don't think that's opening on the 24th. Well, so I think
2: Mulan yeah. has a big fan base. There's people who love that animated, uh, cartoon, but the live action without songs, uh, I've heard from a number of people who are fans of that, they're like, I'm not interested in but see, that see what's, what's interesting
3: is that's why I am interested. Like I'm, I'm yes. interested in seeing it from a oh. historical angle. Like That was always my biggest knock about these live-action remakes is like, if you're just going to make them shot for shot, I'll just watch the original. At least yeah, with yeah. this one, they're looking at it like this was a historical event. So they're Looking at it from the events of it, but here's what I'll say about Tenet. And then you I, loved I know love Lion
2: about. King, though. You did love Lion King. I'm gonna King. punch you <laughs> right
3: in the throat. Uh, what I love, what I think about Tenet is them moving it back two weeks shows that it is shakable, like it, like mm. I, I, it really seemed like they were doubling down and they were gonna yeah. open on the 17th. Now yep. that they have moved they have shown kind of their hand a little bit and shown that they are willing to move it, and they are susceptible. Even the great and power, powerful Christopher Nolan is susceptible mm-hmm. to to the precautions of COVID-19. There was a, there was um, a
2: story, though, that he was not happy. Uh, I don't know who, where that came out, but I saw the okay. headline.
3: Look, I, I... And I say this knowing that this is a podcast that that bows at the power of Christopher Nolan. He's got to get over himself. He has to realize that this is You're basing that on opinion or, or, of, if that is the case sure. if that right. is the case then he needs to get over himself because this is something that is bigger than saving cinema this is something that is bigger than than one person's film i mean at the end of it i i now am starting to wonder if and we've sort of talked about this before and i'm kind of surprised they didn't just go with this if they don't push it to the wonder woman date in august and then push wonder woman back
2: which no, is they did, well, they no, did push well, wonder woman they, back. they did they, they did push, push wonder, wonder so, woman so back so let's get to the second yeah, I would throw out real quick that uh, in addition to Milan potentially going to Disney Plus, and we don't know that for sure. We're just saying that as a as a speculation that's because the 24th would be. Uh, yeah, that's Kevin's guess right now. But we do know that Angelina Jolie had a movie that was coming from Disney. It's called The One and Only Ivan. Uh, it is an adaptation of a very, very popular uh, family children's book that will be going to Disney Plus. It's not going to be making its way to uh, theaters anymore. Yes.
4: i one thing in rebuttal to Jake's discussion Um and I find it interesting that people are questioning Christopher Nolan's character, and I've seen this a lot on Twitter recently where people are like are are going against Nolan because they think he cares about a movie more than people's lives that's not what's happening here Christopher Nolan cares about saving the theater experience and that I I don't think Christopher Nolan's lying in his bed at night going oh yeah people you know I don't care if people die that's not what he's saying I think what he's doing is he knows that we are in an economic situation where AMC theaters lost 2.4 billion dollars in its first quarter whatever the number was and these theaters are hanging on by threads. So if you can put a film in there that people will go see, and that will help to secure and save our movie theaters, that's what Christopher Nolan's mindset is. I mean, I get that Warner Brothers is on the the the, the idea of we want to get the biggest box office opening. And I have, I'm i not criticizing either or. I just find it so annoying that people are criticizing Nolan's character online and, and saying that he doesn't care. That's not a, at all what's going on here. It is a purely business standpoint of saving movie theaters where he has been trying to preserve that experience for years. I don't think it has anything to do with him not caring about people's health and lives. I just don't buy that. I'm sorry.
2: Cool. Uh, yeah, I, 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 think that's, I think that's pretty clear. Um, but there's a slot that is open. Because as you guys just mentioned, why don't they push Tenet back to the Wonder Woman slot? Th- these are the changes that start to hurt. So Wonder Woman 1984 now is October 2nd. Uh, pushed back from August 14th, which was pushed back from June something, which was pushed back it was supposed from to be November of the previous year. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a movie that, I, and now I start to feel really bad for Patty Jenkins or Gal Gadot or people who just have had their movies relatively finished or, or ready to go, the John Krasinski's of the world, uh, Black Widow even, which I think is Oh my is God, we have finished. seen A
3: Quiet Place too. I, I keep forgetting that we've seen, we've seen <laughs> yes. A Quiet Place Part 2.
2: Yeah, and can't talk about it. Yeah. Um, no time to die, the new James Bond film, the final Daniel Craig James Bond film, that moved up. God, five days.
3: That just seemed like a freaking lifetime ago. Remember when we <laughs> were contemplating like whether or not we were going to that junket in London? Like, doesn't that yeah. seem like yes. another world
2: ago? That was uh, end of March, early April. We were <sighs> trying to figure out what that was still going to happen. Uh, the Matrix Four, which I don't think started any production. Is that right? Um, no, they did start. Yeah, they started production. They did. Okay, mm-hmm. so they've moved from, oh my God, they have moved from May of 2021 to April of 2022. Like that's one of those, that's a fast nine jump of just like, hey, we'll see a year from when we, th- we thought we were going to come out. Uh, and the Tom Hanks Bios film, which is his science fiction dog movie and not his World War II submarine movie, uh, is going to be moving to April of 2021, instead of us being able to see it in October. Oh, that movie's uh, going to destroy second, me. 2020. Does uh,
4: Tom oh, Hanks oh, do yes press for Greyhound? Oh. oh, yes. Oh,
2: God, no. Yeah. No, 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 no way. No way. You think he'll do it, Jake? Yeah. Not Have, you, have you heard anything? Not a chance. <laughs> oh, you've heard, you've heard he's doing it.
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh, you already got him. Well, there you go.
2: He didn't get him. He would have told us a million times whether he got him. He might have heard that he's potentially going to get him for the show. For the show. Jakey, for the show. Wink once if he's going to come on Rough Lens. What show? Good Day, Chicago. There we go. <laughs> uh, all right. And for posterity, Gabe would like me to let everybody know that that the New Mutants uh, has not moved. <laughs> yet. It is still going to be coming out uh, in August. I think it's August 27th. But um, I am 100% convinced. That is one of the funniest memes that I've ever seen in my entire (laughs) life. There's um, the guy from Star Trek uh, with the beard, whose name I don't know. Um, But he also hosted one of those Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's got like these little transitions in between scenes where he's just like, we made it up. It's totally false.
3: That one, (laughs) not true.
2: Yeah, that one, not true. And they were like Disney to all the New Mutants fans. We made it up. <laughs> this one's not true. Turns out it was a lie. <laughs> it's really, really funny. Uh, all right. In addition to all these movies getting pushed back, uh, that has a ripple effect on the awards season. In case you don't know, we started this show as Awards Blend. You can find all of our retro merch in the retro section of the new shop The game is launching. <laughs> awards Blend uh, merch. And um, so the Oscars. The Oscars are totally screwed. Um, They are going to be moving back two months and uh, airing on April 25th of 2021. That also means that the eligibility for films to contend for the Oscars is going to be February uh, of next year. Kev, what do you think about these changes? Because uh, I don't really know how to process all this.
4: I mean, like the move to April 25th, doesn't surprise me because they have to have eligibility extend to the end of February because there are films that are in production. Why? What's going on, Jake? Why? Why? Why do they have oh, to have eligibility? It makes perfect sense. To- makes perfect sense because there are films that weren't that had to shoot da- shut down production that were still supposed to come out this year. Tough shit. What, wait, like, like why are you judge, saying, judge judge the movies? Really judge tough yes, shit? judge the <laughs> movies that came out this year. Wait, why <laughs> are you, dude? Are you not, you're, not, you're not. You're missing my, You're missing my point completely. Like no, I, they, I,
3: understand, I understand. There will be lesser films to judge between January first and December thirty first. But but pl- play the cards you're dealt. Dance with the one that brought you. Judge the films that came out this year. Uh, why and why I just have
2: them have them compete next year? Yes, compete. No, I don't mind. No, like I, like I,
3: like. Okay. Like at the end of the year, if Elizabeth Moss really gave one of the best performances that came out this year, then fucking nominate her. Like, like I don't understand. No. Like, like why, why do we have to like make sure other like Oscar movies make sure they wrap up so they can no. get in, so we can give it to the same type of movie we always give it to. Like, so, like just play the play the cards that you were
4: dealt. And if these are if these are the movies that came out this year, then judge those. Then Jake, tell me why you were okay with the eligibility change for VOD films to be nominated for Oscars. That was a change. <laughs> that yeah, they're, had... but, but they're at least done. coming
2: out this year. Yeah, and now, they're done.
4: But that's a new change that you were okay with. So this one you're not okay with because, see in my opinion, we are in an uncharted, unprecedented moment in history where production had to shut down for films that were supposed to come out later this year. And sure. if those films had to shut down, why is it their fault that they can't compete in the Oscars? To me, it, I find it, that to be a ridiculous It just
3: feels like notion. they want to make sure that they get in as many of the like Oscar type of films as possible so that they don't have to give it to anything out of the well, ordinary that they normally wouldn't give it to.
2: I'm going to say this. I guarantee that the Oscars, before they announced this change, took a survey of all the films that they quote unquote feel will be in contention to get a sense of whether they are ready or not, right? And if they heard back from enough people who said, like, let's use Mr. Spielberg as an example, if he was like, hey, I'm not going to have West Side Story ready in time because I still have to do a bunch of pickups and it'll be January, February or, you know, two or three other examples of movies like that. I bet you that that's what pushed them to say, "Ah, "Okay, fine, we'll push the uh, eligibility to February uh, and give those films time to compete. I don't know where I fall on this. This is really interesting to see you two divided by this because I didn't give it as much thought, but I'm a little bit more with Jake in that, fine, if you maintain the end of December as your availability window, and it means you cut down on the number of films that are going to be ready in time, cool. You know, that's the reaction to us being in a weird time. And then those movies that come out in January and February, they would just compete next year. They would just be in the next.
4: I don't buy it. Okay, Kevin, I have a
3: question. Let's say Tenet comes out. And, mm-hmm. we th- and it is like a masterpiece. And we're like, oh, my God, yeah. this is this is Nolan's year. He's got mm-hmm. the Oscar in his hand. It's about time. Give this man an Oscar. And then because they pushed back the eligibility window, mm-hmm. something slips in on like February 26th. And it's mm-hmm. like that Oscar-y type of movie. And they yeah. were able to get in and all of a sudden like – you know, a King's the speech. New Tom Hooper. Wait, yeah. Yes. The new
2: Tom Hooper film comes in and Tom Hooper does awards. a movie about you're, you're, uh, social you're, justice. Yeah.
4: And you're race. not going to tell me that like, that's going to bother you a little bit. No, it wouldn't bother me at all because tenant, if Tenet wins by de- by default because not enough films came out, I don't want Tenet to win an Oscar because I it asked you guys
3: a couple of weeks ago, would it bother you if
4: Nolan won this year despite the fact that there was less? And you're like, no, it wouldn't bother me at all.
2: what I'm, I'm
4: saying it wouldn't bother me personally if Nolan won. I'm saying Tenet winning Best Picture... Because enough films didn't get made to come out, I think is the wrong way to celebrate that movie. I think it actually, I think it actually takes Tenet down a few pegs. I asked, specifically it, if,
3: asked you guys if that no, if that
4: were to happen, and you guys were like, "No, you, I wouldn't care." You said Christopher Nolan. You didn't say Tenet winning Best Picture. You said Christopher well, Nolan. He, he, he will win was, an Oscar if Tenet wins Best Picture. No. The the question you asked was, do you want would you be happy if Christopher Nolan won an Oscar this year in a year with less films? I said, of course, I want Christopher Nolan to win an Oscar. But Tenet winning best picture with less films this year, to me, makes the film a lesser important film, in my opinion.
0: I I have a question to kind of uh, it, that's a good question for the show as sort of like our personal opinion about a specific movie, but. I'm 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 leaning towards Jake's perspective here because in a sense, you know, we're not just seeing movies this year change early. Just a few minutes ago, we're discussing movies next year that are being pushed back a year. And we're kind of seeing how that's it's not like we're just seeing one year affected. We're just kind of the whole slate is being shifted year over year until we get to a more normal sort of state. So does this just kind of push that down the road? If we if we open up this eligibility till February. Mm -hmm. Are they going to shift that eligibility every year right. or is or next, next year there's year, only right. going to sure. be 10 months?
1: Some and within year, that 10 it's months. It's going to be truncated.
4: Yeah. No, no, it's it's going to move forward like that. It's going to
0: be February. It's always going to be forever. You think it's uh, going to be forever? Oh, yeah. I think ah, it's going to be a new pattern. What? Ah. I wouldn't be into that. Why? That's oh, weird. Then, for that. then, so, but it's not, the, it's not the best film of the year. It's the best film of parts of these two years. Yeah, it's Oscars? like a baseball season yeah. <laughs> it's, or like a
4: basketball season. Like a movie
3: comes out on February 6th and wins Best Picture in.
4: April, like two weeks, like isn't that, isn't that strange? What, that's what's, weird. The what's the difference? Was What's the difference? What's the difference between you know, a movie coming out in December and winning an Oscar in February? Come on, two that's different years. You know, Two
0: different years.
4: No, yeah. that's ridiculous, the, man. The Gregorian
2: that is such,
0: calendar. Yeah, I, don't <laughs> yeah know. I mean, it's the year that it came out. I it's, think you guys
4: I, are not thinking about all these productions of so many people who are working on these movies that wanted to get their film made and and yeah, were shut down happens, from man. the pandemic. And then they can't make their movie. So all the Oscars are doing is saying, listen, man, we understand that they are and making I understand movies to understand win Oscars that you want to still make your film this year. I find it. So So let me ask you this. It shouldn't so be someone, about winning Oscars. If a, if a production shut down and the movie wasn't finished until February of, ne- of, of next year, you're telling me that because that movie was made in February, it has to be on the next Oscar cycle it's about when it comes out. It's about when it comes out. I think it's such backwards thinking. Like if you have a movie come out December thirty first and you let it win an Oscar on February. Studios hold movies all the time for weird Oscar calendars. I, I I'm saying I just don't buy the argument that films should suffer because of the pandemic. I feel like that. Why the are they suffering? You?
3: Then your argument is that a, that a movie is made to win Oscars.
4: A no, movie I should just. No, like, like that that, is, that is your argument of like what suffering is. No, it's not. I said movie productions. I think it's disrespectful to a movie production and a director if you're going to tell that person that they can no longer participate. You're te- Listen, if you want to put a you movie up hold up an Oscar, next year. I I I just don't believe in what you're saying personally. What, what, I, just don't what, what I understand, agree like with it. what the problem with waiting is. Like yeah, okay, like sorry,
3: I'm sorry you weren't able to complete your film. Sorry. It'll come out next mm-hmm. year so that so you will compete in next
4: year's on like that's Look at that's how really well works. look at
0: how well Get Out did and it came out in February. Look at how well Black you're, Panther did. And it came out in February You're talking about
4: a chunk of time missing of films that weren't shot or produced or finished within 3 or 4 or 5 month period. You that's cannot not the have the Academy's first. You cannot it's also not the world's fault that we were but, going but through also, a pandemic. But also, like, we but, could
3: get so many more interesting winners from this year. If it, no, if it, if, if,
4: it's a limited
3: landscape. You don't have enough movies to to even have well, competition. You call it limited, I say there's potential for people to win that they maybe otherwise wouldn't have won. Nah.
0: I just but is Man. there not is there not merit to the fact that a limited landscape is a correct reflection of the year that that Oscar represents? I think mean,
2: that's well, fair, like too. It's,
0: if we're talking about looking at it... From a historical standpoint, 20 years from now, do we want the movie that came out in 2021 to win an Oscar? Or do we want the movie that came out in the weird year?
4: So you're saying a movie to reflect what that year was that started to film in January. That was shut down by the pandemic. You're you're
3: putting so much stock in when it starts filming. What does it matter when it starts
0: filming?
4: I I believe in the eligibility extension because I feel like it's a fair trade to films that weren't able to finish. That's just how I feel about it. Uh,
0: I just don't think that that, I don't think that's really a a, a factor because look at. Well, it's an
4: opinion. I'm allowed uh, to have my opinion.
0: No, no, no. I just don't think that that's like a a logistic factor as far as like the actual effect of the film. Like Andrew Patterson, for for instance, shot his film like three years ago, he said, but it just came out this year. You know, that happens. Like people shoot stuff all the time. I think whenever your film is complete is when it's complete and so compete in that year. I don't know. That's where I lean,
2: but. Hold on. Ultimately I think the people who are on the side of Jake and Gabe believe that the Oscars should honor come hell or high water whatever came out from January 1st to December 31st. Okay. That should be the, that should be what the Oscars honor. Now, it could be in a theater, it could be on VOD, and we all acknowledge that there is a pandemic that has disrupted everything. But they feel that it's more important to keep the parameters of January 1st to December 31st, and if you acknowledge but, that, this year is going to be weird because we don't have a lot of movies that are eligible. The right. ones that can't hit that December 31st time frame just have to go back to the next year of it, january 1st december 31st and and before you jump in i think a lot of those films would would essentially and we'll use spielberg again, again as an example because he's a late december release if he says all right we can't make this window and this has happened to a number of films over the years where they just they pick their release date slots but not because of a pandemic november. it's a different no, but he would story go back to man november. he'd go back to november of the next year and he'd be back in the Oscar contention. It would just be another year when we're talking about other films like these other movies, Matrix 4, Tom Hanks, bios. They're jumping a whole year, but they're not Oscar contenders as well. Maybe they will be. Who knows? We have no idea. We haven't seen them yet. It's just whether you think the integrity of the of the calendar should be January 1st to December 31st. That's
4: all. There's a three month hole <laughs> in the filmmaking calendar. They're yeah. filling a the three month hole with the eligibility. It makes perfect sense. Perfect sense.
0: The last thing I'll say is 10 years from now, I, I'm loathing having the conversation of who won, <laughs> yeah. who won best original screenplay in, in 2020 <laughs> for the year 2020. Well, this one, but it came out in February of 2021. But that was like, I don't want to have to have that conversation 10 years from now when I forget that they made this change.
2: <laughs> it just sounds so. This is without a doubt one of the most heated conversations that we've ever had on real Blend, And I didn't think the Oscars pushing back a few <laughs> weeks was going to trigger this, but more <laughs> importantly, I want to hear from everybody else about how you feel, uh, whether you think the eligibility window should have been pushed, uh, whether you think that the Oscars should honor, where do you think the Oscars should honor? And I am dying to hear people's feedback to this. Um, I'm going to talk for a little bit because you guys <laughs> need to settle down, take a deep breath, tell each other you love it, in a text chain, Please. Yeah. Oh, there's a big hug from Jake. There you go. Um, DC has set a virtual fan event called the DC Fan Dome. They announced it today, the day that we are recording. It is going to be held on August 22nd. Uh, This is really exciting for one really big uh, reason that I will get to in a second. But essentially what they're going to be doing is instead of being able to go to the San Diego Comic-Con, which is not happening this year, um, they're going to tease most of their stuff across all of the mediums, film, television. Comic books, video games, toys, it's all coming to this virtual event. And and I find this really interesting because I think it's setting a precedent for what we might see from a lot of these events moving forwards if the studio can figure out ways to get on board. Uh, a virtual way for all people to participate in what is, I believe, going to be a free event. Um, it's 24 hours, so it's a limited time period. It starts on a Saturday. At 1 o'clock Eastern, Um, you go in, you explore all the different areas of this fandom. You could see uh, the the movies that they've been talking about, and we'll keep it to the films, but there's a lot of television stuff also, especially for DC and and Warner Brothers. Um, The Batman is going to have an area. Wonder Woman 1984 is going to have an area. Uh, Black Adam, The Rock's uh, upcoming superhero film, is is expected to have an area. They called a Flash area, but I don't know if that's Ezra Miller or if it's going to be the CW show. And then which really caught my eye, Zack Snyder's Justice League, which they referred to in the press release as the Snyder cut of Justice League uh, is going to have an area. And I find that to be fairly groundbreaking because th- that was the, the redheaded stepchild that Warner brothers didn't want to acknowledge that it had. And now it's a uh, part of an official press release and I'm going to go on record. Oh, I'm wearing my shirt. I didn't even realize yeah, that yeah. I'm wearing my shirt. This shirt, by the way, is really funny because there's a Harley Quinn Uh, animated program on DC. I've heard it's great. It's uh, I've, I've only seen one or two episodes. It's really raunchy. The humor is, is very dark. Um, And they put a joke into one of their episodes where there were these two guys who lived in their basement and they argued about pop culture. And one of them had a t-shirt that said, um, the last Jedi is not Canon. And the other guy had a release, the Snyder cut t-shirt and it was supposed to be a dig at the fan base. And instead the Snyder cut fans were like, that shirt's awesome. Uh, we want to own it basically. So they, uh, went to this website, ink to the people and they turned it into a fundraising charity for it? the, yeah. And this is it. So, that's um, awesome. and I was like, well, it has the title of my book on it. So I'm going to, I'm going to buy one and wear it and also support a really good charity. So, um, yeah, I'm psyched for this. This is August 22nd. It is going to be a ton of DC and Warner brothers content. I'm expecting trailers for things. like I think Matt Reeves probably will have trailers cut together for the Batman. Um, Maybe The Rock will put together some type of panel for Black Adam. Patty Jenkins, again, we talked about the fact that Wonder Woman 1984 got pushed back to October, but she might have some more footage, maybe a scene to show for it. And again, it's open to everybody. It's going to be global and online, and you can just sort of punch in and do it at your own pace, Jakey.
3: Do you think they're going to be showing like a Snyder Cut trailer?
2: Yeah, I think if that's that's probably the place where he's going to have it ready to go. People have been wondering uh, where and when and how he might put a trailer together um, there's no Comic Con. And since Warner Brothers is officially sponsoring this, then yeah, I think he's going to, I think he's probably going to show some footage then. So so I'm excited, put it on the calendar. DC's uh, DC fandom down for August 22nd. Let's shift to, whoa, let's get into another fight and talk about this week in movies. Coming to Amazon Prime on the 19th is Joseph Gordon Levitt's new thriller, 7500. 7500. Right? Is it? That's how it's...
3: Amazon told me 7500. But in okay. the movie and then during my interview today, Joseph gordon Levitt says seven five zero zero, because that's okay. actually the call that you make if there is a, a terrorist hijacking. So to me, oh. if he says seven five zero zero in the movie, then yeah. that's what the title of the movie needs to be. He never he never says seventy five hundred.
2: Right. And it wouldn't be seventy five hundred. if no. The code is seven five zero zero. Jakey, explain what the movie is about and then how you feel about it.
3: Uh, it's a very tight, tense, claustrophobic sort of thriller that takes place, I would say, like entirely in the cockpit of a film. Um, basically, it is uh, a flight that leaves Berlin. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is the co-pilot and terrorists begin what is the hijacking of the plane. Um, Joseph gordon through certain circumstances, Joseph Gordon-Levitt finds himself locked into the cockpit Um, You know, hearing a banging on the outside as the terrorists try to break in. Of course, uh, you know, ground control is telling him under no circumstances are you to open that door and let them in. We're going to we're going to divert you. You've got 30 minutes until you can find the next airport we can bring you to. The X factor that makes things complicated is that not only can Joseph Gordon-Levitt see what's going on through a monitor in the cockpit so he can see what's going on immediately outside the door. One of the uh, uh, flight attendants is the mother of his child. So it's not like he can just stand by and sort of say, well, whatever happens, happens. I'm going to land this plane. The mother of his child is on the other side of that door. So he's torn internally with this conflict of I want to open the door and do something. But they could get into the cockpit and, you know, crash the plane and kill everybody.
2: Mm -hmm. And you liked it.
3: Oh, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was really a tight, tense, like I said, very tight, tense, claustrophobic thriller. Um, I found myself ask, you know, I, I love a good movie that makes me ask those giant moral questions of like, what would I do? Like, what, what is, and this is such a horrible phrase, but like, what is the acceptable loss? You know, because you have yeah. to imagine, you know, if they, you know, if a terrorist does get control of the plane, not only is everyone on the plane going to die, but then who, wherever the plane crashes, that's surrounding people, you know, so but then, you know, you've got people on the other side of this door who you genuinely care about. You, you really start having this really intense moral conflict of like, what would I do? And I genuinely don't know what I would have done. I think Joseph Gordon-Levitt gives an incredible performance i've always thought he was a fantastic actor um i didn't really you know i and also i think that the the uh the terrorist as presented in the film um one in particular not necessarily like just a a a very like generic black or white villain you know they're they're not like the bad guy you know a generic bad guy in a diehard sequel um Mm -hmm. you really kind of start to question who are these people and how did they get to this point Um, and I think there's some really interesting conversations to show that like a lot of that times it lies somewhere in a gray area. Very rarely is, you know, our aspects of the world, black and white. Um, Mm -hmm. and I thought it did all of that in 90 minutes, which I thought uh, was really impressive. I found myself audibly screaming at the TV, Mm -hmm. um, out loud. So, um, so no,
4: I really dug it very much. Enjoyed
2: it. And Kev, you learned a lot about the technical side of it.
4: Yeah, it was cool. It was. It's a really interesting story. It's like very intense, very immersive. Um, and I find that I found that to be a very interesting tool that the filmmaker used. And I thought Gordon Levitt's performance was great. I recommend it. I mean, I I, re- I recommend it with a with a I guess an asterisk. Um, yeah,
2: give that caveat.
4: Yeah, I, it's it's an amazing film that I wouldn't recommend people to watch.
2: I guess <laughs> because it's super intense. Like, and this is what I didn't like about it. Um, and. Both of the guys went first and got to see it, and, and so I went into it kind of really expecting to dig it, and instead I, I didn't like it at all, and it made me f- super uncomfortable. And I think for the point of view that Jake is trying to say, like, the premise almost comes across like a Die esque you know, setup. It could be played that way, a Steven Seagal-type thing or an Air Force One or something, and it, it takes that premise but strips every heroic Hollywood aspect of it and just plays it as life would probably play out. And so from that point of view, it's really, really uncomfortable. Um, And I just found it to be like mean and nasty. And I didn't see the redeeming qualities of it. Like a lot of times I'll just sort of ask myself, like, why am I watching this movie? You know, like, what is this movie trying to put through? And if it just wants to put you into a really uncomfortable situation and make you endure it, endure it is the right way to put it, I guess. Then fine, that's mission accomplished. But I don't I don't necessarily enjoy movies like that. And so And one aspect of it, which Kevin pointed out that I probably wouldn't have picked up if he didn't mention it, is that there's no score. And I guess sometimes score would sort of alleviate some of the tension. But instead, he just he keeps the constant hum of the airplane noise. Um, And there's a pounding on the door because it all takes place inside the cockpit. And the the pounding on the door, sometimes it's from the terrorists. Sometimes it's from the the people, the passengers on the plane. And it is a consistent noise that just drove me nuts (laughs) And again, it's got to be organic to the situation. You know, that's what would happen in that scenario. But it just drove me nuts. And so while I think both of you guys more appreciated the technical craft of it and um, and the the tight 90 minute, you know, uh, immersion of it, it just left me feeling so uncomfortable. And so uh, I don't know. I, I I don't I don't know if I can necessarily recommend it, but um, but check out their interviews. What did you uh, think of, uh, of Gordon
3: Levitt's performance?
2: i thought it was good i don't I, t- I thought the screenplay unfortunately put him in some situations that just felt like they were a little bit predictable like i kind of knew like and i don't want to really say too much because it's a little bit too i thought he did okay with what he was handed but the, the premise of it didn't really didn't really hook me so um the same thing goes for our next vod uh, june 19th thing which is you should have left and I'm not going to get too deep into it because both of you guys plan on watching it after the show. Yeah. Um, but David Kep came on the show this week, talked about the production of it. It's a haunted house film, sort of. Um, Kevin Bacon stars in it. Amanda Seyfried. Uh, and when David was talking about the opening shot of the film, he says that it lays out everything that's that's going on in the movie, which is a a photograph of a family and then a shadow sort of falls over it. Um so it's a bit of a haunted house movie, it's a bit of a family drama movie. All I'll say is that it just didn't necessarily congeal for me, it didn't come together. Uh but I'll leave it for you guys to sort of determine and I'll I'll leave all the spoilers out of it. So text me afterwards. Let me guys, let me know what you guys thought of it. I know that's not helping our audience at all. <laughs> We're bringing up a movie that's going to VOD And then I tell you guys that uh, those two will text me after they watch it, (laughs) but uh, uh, you'll hear their reviews on their respective platforms uh, at the end of the week. So uh, Blend Game, we uh, were talking about the King of Staten Island uh, that came to Video On Demand and Pete Davidson and Judd Apatow. So we were playing hashtag Judd Apatow Blend, where we are going to reveal our favorite films by Judd Apatow. And I want Jake to go first because he asked us an interesting question uh, before he made his choice and then didn't tell us what he was picking. So, Jakey, make your pick and defend it.
3: Yes. Okay. fair. So I, yeah, I asked when this uh, started, uh, could I pick a movie that Judd Apatow wrote but maybe didn't necessarily direct because he has written a lot of stuff. And the reason I wanted to ask that question is because, like, I like a lot of Judd Apatow's movies. But, they're all just so long. They're all twenty to thirty minutes longer than I think they need to be, which means for me, there's there's almost there's little to no replay value in a lot of his movies. Like I like mm-hmm. as much as I love like Forty Year Old Virgin and even like King of Staten Island. Just the thought of like putting that that two twenty movie like on casually, I'm just like ah you know I'll just I'll turn on something else. But he did write a movie in the '90s that was a pinnacle of my childhood. I loved it. I thought it was hilarious. I still think it's hilarious. And and it's and so make fun of me all you want. I'm going with a film called Heavyweights. And if ah, you've never seen Heavyweights, it's about he a wrote
5: heavy He weights. wrote heavyweights. I didn't know that. It
3: has Did what think? I think is one of the all-time great Ben Stiller performances. A, a, a performance that I would uh, say he borrowed from in later years to make some of his more like I would argue like his character from Dodgeball is basically his character from heavyweights. It's a little bit like turned up to the nth degree. Jerry Stiller's in it and gives a great performance. Paul Feig is in it and gives a really funny performance. Um, but it's basically, uh, you know, a group of kids go to um, what is meant to be like this health camp. But secretly they know it's a fun summer camp where they can just go and have a good time. The summer that, they're, that they are there happens to be the summer that the original owners lose the camp. And this new health nut comes in and basically makes camp a living hell for them. And it's about how they spend that summer sort of becoming friends, but also overcoming it's I'm, I'm making it sound a lot more serious than it is, but it's a really fun, lighthearted Disney movie that was very much a, a part of my childhood growing up. I had it recorded on VHS. Um, I think like off of the Disney channel and then would just like rewatch it. I loved it. I still think it's funny. And if, if you were to ask me, if you were to put everything that, that uh, Judd Apatow has done in front of me and say like, you could watch one right now, I would watch heavyweights long before I would watch one of the movies he directed.
2: Interesting. All right, that's that's fine. I get heavyweights confused with disorderlies, I don't which know what I that think is. had a a rap group called the Fat Boys. The Fat Boys, who did disorderlies? What? Am I that old? Come on, guys! I'm going to look that up while Kevin gives his pick. Kev, you're up.
4: Paul Feig was really good in heavyweights, yeah, and also, is. I, I I always wondered why. The the screenwriters for heavyweights didn't sue the screenwriters for dodgeball because the character stiller plays in dodgeball is the same character. Same guy, right? Um, Tony Perkis. I always found that to be weird. Um mine's knocked up, I think, because I rewatched his films recently. That film to me combines like the best combination of the leads and the side characters. Like the side characters in Knocked Up to me are so great, and I love being home with them. Um and To me, that's just his best film from a story standpoint, character standpoint. Uh, I just find his humor in that film to be great, and that's my pick, Judd Apatow. I mean,
2: people forget, um, how good Rogan is in that movie, you know? Yeah, um, I mean, he's he's so known as Seth Rogen now at this point, but he burst on scene and held down a leading role in that part. Do you and, remember that uh, poster? Is it the, them the the, in the poster. The
3: poster was just his head. There might have been one later, but there's one. It was just his head. like, yeah. And this was like really before Seth Rogen blew up, so no one really knew who he was. He'd been in a few things. I think the biggest thing he'd been in by that point was 40-year-old virgin. But it's just his like head, kind of with like that goofy uh, 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 smile. And then, yeah. and then it just had the, the tagline, what if this guy got you pregnant?
2: <laughs> Which I thought was That's such pretty. a great poster. That's a really good Seth Rogen laugh too, by the way, I'm going to give you a lot of credit for that. Uh, I'm a little bit with Kevin in that. um, I feel like 40 year old virgin and knocked up are the two closest Judd Apatow films. I feel like those are the movies that he set out to make. Um, He found the right people to fit the characters he wanted to write. And then from that point on, he kind of drifted into other types of storytelling, which I've talked about on the show. Most recently, um, funny people. He might have had a big idea about funny people. He liked doing stand up. He liked being with stand up comedians. But that feels like it was fashioned around Sandler. Um, and then you got into This Is Forty, which is the um, knocked up spin off kind of thing that he went after. And then Trainwreck, which was, I thought was fashioned around Amy Schumer. And I think Pete Davidson. If if you don't have Pete David Pete Davidson, uh, you don't have King of Staten Island. I don't think he makes that movie. Um, so I'm going with Forty Year Old Virgin. Because I think he had a great premise for that. Um, and then he found Steve Carell. You know, I don't think Steve Carell kind of came around like I have this idea. Um, I think Steve Carell was just the perfect choice for that. And again, we we don't give Steve Carell enough credit. And Brendan is rewatching The Office right now. And I'm watching episodes that I just haven't seen in years upon years. And I'm reminded of what a gifted comedian he is. He, and how did he about,
3: never win an Emmy for that? He never won an Emmy.
2: It's insane. And you can go back through one of our old episodes, too, and find Kevin's dissertation on Brick and just how brilliant of a character Brick is. Um, and Carell doesn't get the credit that he deserves. And then, of course, just for holding down the 40 year old virgin. Uh, I think that combination of Apatow and him make that my all time favorite film. It's probably it's it's like a Michael Bay syndrome too. his earliest films were his shortest ones. <laughs> And then he just they got a little bit more lost in, in who they are uh, as filmmakers. And I think Judd Apatow and Michael Bay uh, both need just just an editor, just as who sat and sits in the room with them and says, maybe this scene can go or maybe maybe chop this one out. But uh, and and again, I hate I in a way, almost like with Spike, I don't like to say that, oh, your earliest stuff is your best stuff and you can't ever overcome that. I think especially with King of Staten Island, it shows that Judd has some really good storytelling Left in him, and maybe he's going to keep looking for that project that just connects. But, um, four year old virgin to me is, uh, really, really funny. Um, going to next week's blend game, uh, based on oh, audience picks. I'm sorry, Aiden Erdahl said, My favorite Judd Apatow movie is King of Staten Island. It's his best film in that it balances comedy and drama, and it has some amazing jokes and great moments. John Palmer says, Super bad. And Gabe is asking if it's, if that's as a producer, did he produce Superbad? Did
3: He, he probably I, did. Yeah. I don't think he wrote he
2: produced it. He produced no, a, he didn't write or direct it. So pr- I guess it's producer
3: just producer seems like a stretch. <laughs> it for has
0: his—that's a reach. It has his voice in it It has his style in it. I guess. Sure.
2: All right, John. John I mean, write but us Okay, a but message could, and could I it.
3: say that like Back to the Future is my favorite Spielberg movie?
2: <laughs> no, Stop. I wouldn't. I wouldn't argue that necessarily. The blend game is an open translation necessarily. John, I feel like Roll, I'm being
3: very uh, combative on the
2: show this week. You really are. Yes, you're. you're <laughs> You're being very aggressive. I don't care. Not
3: aggressive. I'm being the, I I, I consider it the voice of logic.
2: There's so much participation from everybody this week. I want to thank everyone who played along on Judd Apatow Blend. Um, For next week, we're going with a, an idea that has come out of our text chain and it is called hashtag warm blanket blend. And Gabe, I want you to explain warm blanket. I'm glad that Gabe is weighing in uh, on the show a little more often. So please explain warm blanket blend for us.
0: So, Warm Blanket Blend is just kind of that movie that uh when you watch it, it sort of gives you that warm and fuzzy feeling. It makes you feel comfortable or secure or whatever. And it doesn't necessarily mean that like the movie's content does that, but it can just be like the nostalgic feeling of watching it or just the way that it it's stylistically done or whatever, just puts you in like a nice comforting place. This came up with me re-watching Knives Out this past weekend. Um, and I realized just how much I love that movie and Didn't really expect it to be as high on the list of my favorite, you know, movies from last year as I think it is now. But because it's such a fun movie, because it's such a fun mystery, reminds me of like watching movies when I was a kid and just uh, following the mystery of something and and kind of being entertained. So for me, that's like a warm blanket movie. Suicide and murder and whatever is not necessarily warm blanket. But that's why I say, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be the
2: content. I'm excited for this one. I'm going to go out of my way to not pick Human Centipede 3 uh although it's definitely my obvious choice for warm blanket blend thank you very much uh Stop reviews losing for this bets, week. Dude. recommended uh th- okay so the the subject line for this <laughs> this review this week comes from someone named uh newbie 100876 and they said uh recommended for all basement dwelling movie fans now i'm going to take offense to that right off the bat i'm and, from texas uh, we don't have basements there you go. Neither do we in North Carolina, ironically. We're the too, we're soil good. is more like a clay. Yeah, we're, we're, we're below sea level. Yeah, I think it's a southern thing. Um, And they write, I have been listening to this podcast since the awards blend days, and I look forward to it every week. Sean, your knowledge, description, and overall critique of why you love a film is simply poetic. All right, I'm back in. I'm back in <laughs> with you, newbie 100876 uh let's see uh it's simply poetic i often replay your descriptions because you catch things i never have kevin your passion and enthusiasm for film is infectious and you've convinced me to like things i once hated jake jake is also there your sense of humor is the best and you have a wonderful laugh i'm usually in agreement with you but i definitely love the banter you bring not this week Sir, not this week. And Gabe, you have the voice of an angel. Glad we get to occasionally hear you when you come out of your lair. That is one of the best reviews that this podcast has ever received. Thank you very much, sir, for sending it. Um, We have seen a ton of great support from everybody, uh, both on the Facebook page uh, and the emails that you guys send. Um, Who sent us this about The Double? We mentioned a movie called The Double last week in the blend game and then um the listener who gabe is going to look it up uh while we're doing that i'm gonna wrap us up with uh, where you can find us on social media at jakes takes at kevin mccarthy tv and at sean underscore o'connell you can drop us a review on itunes uh email it to us or um or post it to that facebook community page gabe just say it you can just say you don't have to text it to me
0: oh i didn't want to interrupt you uh laura eddie laura
1: Laura, eddie laura kind enough to send a
2: great email about the double thank you very much we appreciate it and um we'll be back next week with um we're gonna look forward to the new steve carell movie that's coming out with john stewart called irreversible um i can't wait to review that one next week so uh until then dunkirk thank you i think it's is it irresistible oh it is irresistible yes thank you we're a movie podcast the new steve carell film oh it's not irreversible (laughs) That's a really bad movie that people wouldn't want to discuss or see Steve Carell in.